I'm actually pulling up the the Louis Mall scene right now because <laughs> I didn't realize that was him until afterwards, and I'm now I'm like trying to remember like wait a minute what was the who was he supposed wait, to wait, be? Who's Louis Mall? The like Spanish day worker who has sex with her and like oh, the field. Jesus oh, yeah, yeah Jesus yeah I didn't know that was Louis Mall. That's that's a classic. Avec la partition. <laughs> <laughs> with, yeah, with the, yeah, the guest spot, the French yeah. version of guest spot. Yeah, avec that, participation. That's, that's one for you, Ryan. That's, that's a guest star. That's true. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. I challenge you to a duel. Tell the truth, this guy's starting to get on my nerves. You want to crown them? They crown them, but they are who we thought they were. It's hot. It's hot out there. Let's we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, folks, and welcome to another edition of the Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts. Andrew Stasulis, and with me tonight are Eric Marsh and Ryan Saunders. For those who don't know, The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of the hosts selects a topic for the week, and the other two hosts are tasked with bringing films to the table that meet the topic, address the topic, punch the topic square in the nose, you know? (laughs) We've had it all. We love it all here in the Gauntlet Studios. It was my turn to pick this week. This is episode 69. Nice. Nice. Yeah, nice. Uh, So I, you know, went where my goofy imagination would go and I was just really obsessed with that number I couldn't get that number out of my head 69 69 so so uh, I had a bunch of weird things bouncing around in there and then I just sort of thought you know let's just go with the number you know let's just go with the number 69 I thought how about 1969 a very very great year for cinema some of my favorite films are from 1969. Very vibrant here. So I asked the boys to bring me films from 1969. Feeling fine, 69. You know, before they brought me their films, I was really, you know, reflecting on just like, whoa, how many great movies there are in 69. So many bangers from all over the world. Great political thrillers, Westerns, war movies, comedies, you know, action films, dramas, biopics, you name it, you know, so vibrant. It really kind of made me think about like today and just, you know, how movies, movies generally suck today. You really kind of face that. You'll see all these great movies. So, so I was sitting there and I was like, man, what a vibrant year. So much to choose from. And somehow... The boys both brought me French films about sex and vengeance. <laughs> so much out there. And you both, you know, you you leaned into, I think, the seedier idea of 69. <laughs> and, and that's 
what we got today. Two interesting films, two films I'd never seen before, with, I think, a lot in common, in spite of their differences in tone. Uh, very interested to hear what you boys have to say about these films. So without further ado, let's bring them on out. Now, normally... <laughs> we you should know, have checked the someone, release dates, yeah. Someone started this a long time ago, you know, the, the tradition of starting with the earlier film. We can't really do that here. So I'm just going to start with you, Ryan. Why don't you tell us about the film that you brought? Sure thing. Well, when I was scrolling through the list of different films from 1969... There was a significant amount of stuff that um, triggered my memory of like, wow, oh, I, there, there are so many great films from 1969. And then there was also all this stuff that had been on my watch list forever. But then I started going down this rabbit hole of trying to figure out how do I narrow down my perspective here? Because I was looking at, there's this Argentinian film that's written by Borges. I'm like, well, we already did Borges. And I'm trying to think like 69, what do I want to focus on with 69? And I know part of you was, you know, you're like, well, it doesn't necessarily need to be sexy. You know, let's think about the year. Let's think about what the year represents. And I couldn't resist. I still wanted to find something that, you know, dealed with sex in some sort of fashion. In the midst of that search, I came across this film, A Very Curious Girl, a.k.a. The Pirate's Fiance, a.k.a. Dirty Mary. And this film is directed by the quote-unquote French filmmaker Nellie Kaplan uh, and I guess to just like briefly introduce Nellie Kaplan to get an idea of, of her projects and, and her work she was born in Argentina and she lived there for the first 17 years of her life her parents are Russian Jews and when she moved to France uh, when she was 17 she didn't speak a, a word of French she, she bought a radio and she used that radio to sort of like get herself up to speed and she got herself up to speed pretty quickly and started working with Abel Gantz another uh, gauntlet you know champion from, from last year and she collaborated with him on some work and eventually later in her career did did make um, a film uh, about him and a very curious girl is is her first film it's her debut feature and the film tells the story of a woman named Marie, herself a very curious girl, as the title suggests, who lives in a extremely <laughs> oppressive and nasty countryside village. Uh, she lives in this shack with her mother that everyone in the town accuses of being a sorcerer. One of the reasons being that they have this big black goat that looks like Black Philip, you know, out of the out of the legends. And um, apart from accusing the mother of being a sorcerer, you know, Marie herself is just told like, oh, you're a witch. You know, they all have suspicions about it. And apart from having those suspicions about <laughs> their origins and, you know, what they bring to the table, they're also all over her. You know, they, they're pawing at Marie any chance they can get. She really has no safety from the groping hands of, of all of these men as she participates as a servant in the town. Very early in the film, though, tragedy strikes, 
and her mother is the victim of a hit-and-run accident. And the men cart the mother over to, to her shack. They don't even offer her a proper burial. They sort of just dump the body. Um, and to give you a sense of what these men are like, when Gaston, who's like this rifle-wielding man, goes to tell Marie, like, oh, your, your mother is dead, like, he initially tries to get a kiss and get a nice little squeeze in before relaying that information. So that gives you an idea of, like, you know, these dudes and what this town is like. So Marie decides that, you know what, she's going to start using their predatory behavior potentially to her advantage. At first, she decides to become a sex worker. She starts charging them for uh, for her services, for them to, to sleep with her and, you know, use, use her shack. And eventually, though, she starts to come up with a little more of a devious plan to, to get at all these men. And I, I won't spoil that right now. It was a film I hadn't seen before. I, I, I hadn't seen anything from Nellie Kaplan. She was recently on my radar because she actually died last year from COVID uh, very tragically. But she does seem like a pretty interesting figure in, in film history. And this film, I you know, I walked away really enjoying it. I, it reminds me of the maxim Marsh and I have often shared that every film is a masterpiece for its first 30 minutes. And when I was watching this, I was like, this is like blowing my mind. I really loved it. And I don't know if it sustains it the whole time, but I'm still really glad that I brought it to the table. And I'm happy to hear what, what both of you think about it, especially in pairing with the film that, that Marsh selected. So that's a very curious girl from 1969. For a second, I thought, you know, in your at the end of your intro, when you were saying, you know, the maxim that that Marsh and I shared, I thought, I just visually just pictured you two like trading a Maxim magazine back and forth. <laughs> we are. <laughs> yeah, I just, yeah, we have a really yeah. rare edition of Maxim magazine that actually has an interview with Nellie Kaplan in it. Yeah. It's got Denise Richards yeah. on the cover. Back when the articles yeah. were good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Jesus Christ. All right. Uh, Marsh, I'm, I'm much more familiar with the director of the film that you selected, though. I hadn't seen the film. So why don't you tell us a little bit about it? A specter is haunting the gauntlet. Or I should rather say has been until now. Because... Concurrently to, you know, really about the time that we started doing this over a year ago, I was uh, really getting into the films of this director. Um, And that director being the French New Wave legend Claude Chabrol. Chabrol, I feel like these days, is probably the least seen, least known of, you know, certainly the Kaye critics turned filmmakers. A lot of this, I think, is due to the availability of his films, but beyond that, he worked in a kind of commercial popular mode and made a lot of genre films and, and had a lot of range within that style but still kind of remains an elusive figure, I think, uh, at this point in time. Yeah, he wasn't as flashy as some of the others. Exactly. And so I had seen, you know, quite a few of his films over the years, but I'd never really done a deep dive. I'd seen some of the early stuff. I'd seen some of the late stuff. And then 
I got into the middle period. And uh, for those unfamiliar with the works of Claude Chabrol, uh, he, he kind of fell into a bit of a rut in the middle 60s doing like bad B spy movies, a couple of Anthony Perkins, uh, sort of like book adaptations that, that didn't do great. Uh, but then in the late 1960s, he had a, a sort of artistic renaissance, a creative renaissance of sorts that begins with Le Bichet in 1968, which is like a loose rework of talented Mr. Ripley. Uh, and then for my money, he rattles off about like six masterpieces. Uh, and one of them being the film I chose for this episode, which is La Femme Infidel, AKA The Unfaithful Wife from 1969. And this film is, uh, in many ways, uh, quite simple. It is about uh, an unfaithful wife, as the title suggests. And we are introduced to the, you know, perfect bourgeois family living in the suburbs in Versailles, Helene and Charles de Valli, and Michel, their son. And, uh... Early on in the film, Charles uh, sort of gets the feeling that uh, his wife may be cheating on him, and this begins to uh, consume his every thought and every action, uh, and we follow him through this journey uh, to discovery and what happens after that. It's a hard film to talk about, I think, because for me it's like pure cinema. It's so simple and yet it's so complex, you know? And I think that's what I really, really appreciate about it. But I also think more broadly, what I really came to, I think, love about Chabrol in general uh, is number one, his sense of humor, and number two, his just like absolute sort of like, I don't want to say hatred, but he, he has like a very wicked kind of spirit, I think. And his films often feel like really mean cosmic jokes. And I fucking love that. And within <laughs> that, you know, there's all this sort of, you know, like classical filmmaking dollies and, you know, all this very, like, carefully calibrated gestures and looks. And it's just, you know, to me, it's just, like, light as a feather and very funny. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, you know, that's, that's what I guess I can't wait to talk about it with you uh, because I love it, you know? So, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's La Femme Infidel. Yeah, when you put it that way... Um on a certain level, I've always found Chabrol to be like um, the the sort of French bastard stepson of Alfred Hitchcock and O. Henry. You know, <laughs> like especially <laughs> in that on the on the level of the the kinds of like cosmic irony that we often see unfold through murder through crime through suspicion paranoia perception that sort of thing so i think it's a very very good way of of putting it i i couldn't help for myself thinking that or at least a way that i i initially connected these two films was sort of seeing them both as in their own different ways 
basically satires of of France and of French culture from from two different class systems, right? For from from two different class uh, elements in a in a certain in a certain sense. Um, you know, there was so much in both of these that I I couldn't help but start to feel like, you know, they were like <laughs> very much making fun of being French and of French identity. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, in the case of a very curious girl, it 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 drifts into a strange, surreal territory. It's it's almost cartoonish at times. I think in its depiction of of, you know, the, the oversexed Frenchmen, you know, all running around and cheating on their wives and, 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 you know, everyone seems to be in on it in spite of all this, this, you know, quote, secrecy and that sort of thing. It's like the worst kept secret in town. And it's just sort of like, uh, you know, it becomes an element of the economy and, and of the, the, the town council meetings and that sort of thing, (laughs) right? It's, it's a given that, that this kind of thing is, is present and and we all from the priest to the game warden have to sort of work with it and for an unfaithful wife you know it's it's on a different level because these characters are are you know they're bourgeois they're very wealthy they're very privileged and we get the idea of again infidelity but but from the the, the French husband, you know, inflamed with jealousy and and eventually perhaps uh, murderous rage. But there was just so many little things in both of them that I found uh, hilarious and, and very funny. And I, I think in the case of a very curious girl, it's it's obvious. This is a comedy. This is this is a a farce. Mm-hmm. Um, but the comedy as you, I think, pointed out in your, in your intro, Marsh, of, or the comedic elements or the, the pitch black humor of Chabrol, I think it, it, it you kind of have to like seek it out a little bit in an unfaithful, the unfaithful wife. Um, but, but it's there. And once I was able to kind of key into it, there were some very, very funny, funny moments in it. So that was, I think, the, my initial way of kind of connecting them is mm-hmm. the sort of the attack on being French from these French films. Yeah, I did find the Chabrol particularly funny. The And it, it was interesting because I felt the same way, that it wasn't necessarily telegraphed in a way that I was expecting. And at first I did kind of struggle figuring out like how I was supposed to read this thing. Like it was funny as, you know, Marsh mentioning, this is like mid period Chabrol and me just jumping in there. I've only seen La Ceremonie and I've seen the majority of a story of a woman, which I had watched in a sexuality in Europe class and in college and to fit it within the 90 minute window of the course, they, uh, the teacher like fast forwarded through 20 minutes in the middle of the movie because uh, <laughs> she wanted us to, to watch it all in one sitting. Nice. She's like, this part could be alighted. It reminds me of those like apps that tell you like when you can go pee for if you're seeing like a big movie in a multiplex or something, all these like bloated three hour action films. Like this is when you pee. It was kind of like that. Oh but so God. watching this, I, a, a little bit unfamiliar with his sensibilities. I knew he was like pretty caustic in, in certain respects. And 
it, it didn't take long though. You know, at first I was really stressed out watching it cause it's so cold, you know, and everyone's like really stiff and they're kind of whispering at each other almost. And the idea of intimacy happening amongst any of these people feels like a disaster zone, you know? But I think, yeah, I was really grounded in its perspective on, yeah, this bourgeois family out in Versailles, just like the way he clinically looks at their home, the way that he is pretending to depict warmth in this very cold way, it grew to be like extremely funny as the film progressed, especially if there were brief moments of like actual life in it you know like when you meet his secretary brigitte who seems like she's full of vitality and having a nice time she feels like something that you would expect in a 1969 film and then everything else is just so tense and weird i did find it very funny yeah i think the performance particularly from michelle bouquet who is a a recurring member of the Chabrol stock company in this period. I think like with Chabrol, he perfected this kind of like parody of the bourgeois man because there's another great film uh, in this period called Before Night Falls. And in the opening, Michel Bouquet strangles a woman he's having an affair with and then goes around the rest of the movie asking for absolution and no one cares. It's like, again, it's just like this like insanely wicked joke, but him just being this uptight, you know, like wealthy guy. I, I was even cracking up because at a certain point, Kyle and I were like, what is this guy's job? He fucking commutes into Paris and then just sits at a desk reading the newspaper and chain smoking. And it was, it just cracks me up. And this was the second time I've seen it. And I didn't laugh as much the first time. The second time I was laughing at every little gesture, like the way Chabrol will match cut from him, like in the car, lighting a cigarette to him lighting a cigarette in his office. And then the camera's like dollying back as all he does is just like leans up in his chair. You know, it's like all this grand cinematic shit for this guy who's, yeah, just this empty kind of like, empty rich guy you know right until he is awakened right mm-hmm. yeah i was yeah. really struck by that too because the film really is just so simply plotted you know it is like a cookie cutter beat for beat type story of infidelity but because of the way he shoots it because of the way he cuts it the types of things he decides to linger on it, it Yeah, it does feel like this big cinematic experience that you wouldn't associate if you had just maybe read that script. Yeah, nothing like a uh, being offered a beer at the office at like 10 a.m. You know? <laughs> I mean, the, the drinking as well, the fact that they're like just drinking all the goddamn yeah, time. Yeah, he's indulging know? in like every pleasure possible at every turn basically Mm. with his smug little face you know like (laughs) everything he does has this just like tinge of smugness and then on the other hand the wife played by stephanie aldran who was chabrol's wife at the time she's yeah a little cooler than him and of course you know their their home life on the surface is really great, but there's an obvious disconnection going on as she like gets ready for bed and he's like tucked in (laughs) when he's like all tucked in, you know, there's like his little jammies. He like puts on a record and like tucks himself in and she gets on the bed and she's like hot 
and on top of the covers and he's just like disgusting and under the covers and then he just turns the light out she's like trying to kind of like flirt with him and he's just like okay good night and just like <laughs> turns, oh, yeah. the, turns the light off yeah and that's like our introduction <laughs> to like okay you know mm, yeah. maybe some passion has gone out of this in a movie called the unfaithful wife when you've got a hot wife and you put her to bed Ice cold like that. You're asking for it. <laughs> <laughs> After they have sent their son to bed reading the origins of God. <laughs> oh my God. That little kid too is cracking me up because like there's there's like the moment when they're like having dinner. And again, like I think it's it's almost comedic how perfect the son is. You know, he's smart, he's good at school, like he's at like the top of the class, right? All this stuff. And then like they finish dinner in one of the early scenes that they've, you know, talked about his schoolwork this that and the other and then you know the boys are excusing him from the table and and the dad's like no telly you want to watch a little tv with us and the kid just looks at the dad and goes tv bores me and then grabs his book and like walks away <laughs> and i was like what is going on dude? this is wild i also loved and i think it's a joke i mean it, it like for me, like one of my first notes I wrote was like, your Hitchcock is showing, you know? And that's like an easy note for a lot of Chabrol films. But one of the things in this that I, I think I really appreciated, um, and I think it's one of his biggest, uh, obsessions with Hitchcock are, are, you know, it's, it's like his focus on objects, yep. on objects. And, you know, with Hitchcock, he's a master of, of objects and objects taking prominence and using his camera to, to draw our attention to things that, you know, uh, a cigarette lighter, a knife, scissors, you know, whatever. Uh, and, and Chabrol is, is definitely like, he's, he's, he's doing that, but he's doing it in a way where it becomes comedic. You know, he's like sort of playing with the idea of like Hitchcock close-ups, but distorting them because like we get the TV and the TV in this extreme close-up, it just looks like a normal size TV. And then he, he cuts away and it's like a, it's like a portable transistor TV or something. Right. Yeah. It looks like a radio. Massive, yeah. In this massive home, it's like a six inch TV screen or something that they're watching. Yeah. The I idea mean, that that was all they could afford is so funny i mean they're clearly so wealthy it's a laugh i think and and again i think that's why sometimes it's kind of hard to like get on his wavelength because the performances are so as you mentioned ryan like they're cold and they're they seem dispassionate um and then you're just hit with like that kind of a shot and you're just like what the fuck is going on here i feel like this is ridiculous this is ridiculous right yes it is ridiculous (laughs) and we're supposed to think that you know Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's worth mentioning, too, that Chabrol in this period often pushed back, you know, against the Hitchcock comparison, although admittedly, right, he wrote about him. He loved him like one of his favorite filmmakers, but he he would maintain that. Yeah, of course, I steal from him, but Hitchcock is is more subjective than I am. I try to be like Fritz Lang, objective, right? Which, again, I'm not sure he totally pulls that off because there's so much about perception here. Yeah. But he's definitely with the, like, supercharged objects, uh, totally, like, in that mode, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's easy to, to sort of, for him to kind of push against of that course. comparison, yeah. but... But then you watch it, and and again, it's, it's like, undeniable. Yeah, and and again, like playing with perspective and and playing with, you know, what we see, what we don't see. I, I think, I guess, 
if if I'm understanding why he would say that, or what he wants to say, it's sort of like maybe Hitchcock privileges us a little bit more as viewers than Chabrol wants to. You know, uh, Chabrol wants more ambiguity than than Hitchcock would employ within his films. And certainly there's ambiguity in Hitchcock films, but you know, Hitchcock's mantra was always like, the audience needs to know who it is, why they did what they did. And, and you know, they need to know there's a bomb under the table. They need to know all those things. And Chabrol is sort of stringing us along a lot more than, than I think Hitchcock ever would in, in that sense. Definitely. There's also a great deal of importance placed on particular objects in A Very Curious Girl, both in terms of devices she would later use to enact revenge on some of these men. We'll, we'll save that for a little bit later. But in particular, the objects I loved were the ones she started to collect from all of the men as she started to charge them uh, to, to sleep with her in her shack. And, and many of them were stealing, you know, like coins from, from their wives in order to, to, to meet her costs. But I, I did love, she starts collecting all of their wristwatches and then starts displaying like all of these watches on the wall for all of the men she's, she's had like into, into her shack. It's funny too, because I feel like all of these objects we get to see throughout the film are contributing to her turning her rundown farm shack into like an actual 1969 den of sorts it progressively goes grows like much more colorful with all of these primary colors and we start to see her get interested in technology coming in from the city um and it turns the space into something that feels more contemporary and not just like stuck out in like the horrors of a a parody of the french countryside yeah, and I think that, again, that's part of like the surreal satire that that uh, you know this very curious girl's, you know, in part her liberation comes from uh, essentially erecting a a shrine to like late sixties pop consumerism in in like the fucking swamp of this like yeah. you know this like this like shitty country town or something like that but but yeah that that thing too about the objects and and the watches uh was also like my favorite joke that one of the characters sort of like tosses off uh in the in the film where you know at a certain point another guy comes in and and she's right away just like you know pay me motherfucker you know you disgusting man like pay me and and he says to her boy, you don't waste time. And she's standing in front of a wall of fucking watches that she's taken from guys. And like, there's a lot of like double entendre. There's a lot of like double meaning to so much of the humor and the interactions that, that it, it can kind of happen so quick. You, you miss it. But when you really take a moment, it's a very, very sharply written film. Uh, and, and I, I, I loved that. I loved the humor in it. And it's certainly a much more like in your face humor than mm -hmm. than Chabrol's, but I think there's also a lot of like cleverness and and subtlety to to the the writing that that was you know very very much something I appreciated. I think it's really impressive in a very curious girl how Bernadette Lafont like transforms herself as well. I mean like 
there's so much going on that's unsaid, really. You know, we just visually get her transforming her appearance. And, and it goes back to the class thing. It's like she starts as this, like, servant who's constantly berated and has to feed Grandpa on Irene's farm. And there's, like, Julian, the farmhand, who's, like, trying to rape her all the time. Um, and she's got, yeah, she's got the rag in her hair, and she's kind of, like, dirty. Uh, and then as the film progresses and as she sort of embraces, uh, you know, her who she is or who she can be, right? She gets like hotter. You know, she starts wearing makeup. She starts having like new hairdos. Like all of a sudden her hair is like feathered, you know? And you're like, oh yeah, we're like coming up to 1969 pretty soon. And even in that transition, I I, I thought it was like brilliant that, you know, in her first uh, moment of, of sort of like, essentially we will later realize like, beginning her revenge, hatching her scheme, her plan uh, to completely overturn the power dynamics here. Her first makeup, the first things that she can get her hands on, she's putting on rouge with raspberries. You know, yeah. she's she's smashing raspberries into her cheeks to give it a little a little like red hue. And she's using a match that she extinguishes, you know, so she can put the soot on her eyebrows, like an eyebrow pencil, and to put eyeliner on. I, I loved that that visual. I mean, I wouldn't call it a gag, but just that 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 sort of like little trick uh, that was employed there was was I thought incredible. Yeah, I, I was also really struck by the raz the raspberry rouge, and I was also thinking about how in that transformation and acquiring new lingerie, she's like very practical about it. You know, she's making friends with all the city folk, some of which are literally specialists in underwear, you know, making sure she can get like nice, uh, you know, the top of the line stuff. Um, but that is something that's very distinct about where she lives, right? They are sort of completely cut off from 1969, right? Like she doesn't know what a tape recorder is. They refer to it as like a way of freezing voices. Cause there's a whole sequence too of her, like at a shop, you know, going around doing the big shop with a man who's going to be sponsoring all of these new things that she can add to her collection. And it's just one of those classic scenes of the outsider being like, oh, what does this device do? You know, and then like adding it onto the pile of all the things she's she's going to take home. Yeah, her only contact with the outside world is Andre, the projectionist, who uh, is really the only kind of like nice man in the yeah. movie. He's kind of like romantically injured but obviously, you know, understands that she is a sex worker and he, pay, and he pays her. But really, he's like, you know, he wants her to be his girlfriend. And he's kind of, uh, compared to the rest of the roughnecks in town who are like these outlandish sort of comic sketches of the priest and the pharmacist and the cafe owner, you know, like the communist uh, commune guy, Emil, you know, like <laughs> you guys are right. Everyone is sort of like, yeah, all these different types, you know, and that really is such a, such a strong connection, I think, between the movies that you brought up, Andy, like the usage of these types, you know? And I would point out too, that, that Andre, there's, there's actually, there's, there's a couple other figures who, who she, she likes and considers kind to her. And yes, Andre is certainly a very prominent figure, but as you mentioned, 
She does like Grandpa quite a bit. That's true. She does like Grandpa, who just sits there. Because he's restricted, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Eating his soup. And I love the little, like, apparatus they set up for him on the high chair with the, like, the pipe on the arm that, like, he can just puff on where he doesn't need to, like, lift his his feeble, like, hands yeah. to get to. Like It almost yeah. looked like the aluminum clamp made his pipe look like he was smoking crack when Dude, he was sitting I, in his high chair. I loved it. Because he's, like, a big baby, you know? He's just basically mm. a big baby. And she likes him because he's just always looking at her with, you know, probably very senile geriatric like kindness. And then, of course, the goat. The goat is someone else she points out is is like, you know, one of the only figures there that actually like treats her with tenderness and, and kindness. And yes, it's sort of sad that one is, of course, never around in Andre, the projectionist who only can kind of pop in. It seems once in a great while, uh, an old man who is uh, lost in his, you know, ancient brain and a goat, you know, like that's her, those are her three lifelines to any kind of respect, tenderness or affection in this group. It would be really fun having Andre's job too, going around with his La Cinema de Andre projecting in like different countryside towns. It seems like a pretty good gig. I can't imagine how much longer that would have lasted after 1969 in France, you know? Seems pretty niche. Well, I do know when I lived in Edinburgh, uh Tilda Swinton, uh one of her one of one of her like little pastimes was traveling around through the highlands with like a mobile cinema unit and she would bring it to like the small towns of the highlands, the magic of cinema brought to you by Tilda Swinton and her magic bus. You know, it's funny because I was getting, you know, in my head, I was watching this movie and I'm thinking like, this is like feminist Buñuel, you know, like that's really like what I, what I was thinking of in a crude way. And then Andre's van has a Belle de Jour advertisement on it. And I was like, oh yeah, it's all connected because it really is like, a kind of like loose, wide shot kind of style for the most part. Uh, kind of just like letting the performances and the setting and all like the creations that are going on within the film. Her shack, herself, her art outside at the grave of her mother, you know, like there's just all that. And it's kind of, yeah, we're just kind of like chilling, you know? Yeah, it's it's <laughs> like in spirit, in spirit, it's kind of like the the inverse feminist uh, version of that obscure object of desire, right? It's like if if instead we were, instead of being rooted in like a a nasty old, you know, (laughs) nasty old man's view of of this woman and how mean and evil she could be and twisted and double-sided, right? We're, We're seeing things from her perspective when he's not around and like, yeah, I mean, I, I know that obscure object of desire does also, you know, make him look like a big pig, but it's still Buñuel, and there's still a lot of, I think, you know, nastiness directed towards women in there that 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 in in this case is completely overturned. And and this is a movie about women's liberation. This is a woman. This is a, a film about a woman's revenge against society, and. And, and it quickly starts to escalate. I think and you even mentioned this in your introduction from, from like, yeah, just a woman who's trying to, to, to come up a little bit to a woman who is 
now trying to destroy this place and destroy these people's lives. And uh, I, I, I certainly got a big kick out of that as the scheming uh, started to get a lot more aggressive in terms of just crushing these people. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned liberation, right? Because that was something I was thinking about in terms of both films being placed in 1969. I remember another, I'm thinking about the two sex classes I took when I was in school. There was the sexual revolution in Hollywood class that, that I think I maybe have mentioned before. And, and they, um, one of the big things that was highlighted was this idea is like, okay, the sexual revolution, like who was it really for? Like what was really the revolution here? Like was it more of just a revolution for men? You know, like they were the ones who were allowed to be freed because of the pill. And, you know, like there were still so many standards that women were being held to. And I think both of these films kind of engage with that in an interesting way. I don't know if they like necessarily align themselves with that thesis, but I do think it's interesting how in a curious girl, the idea of sexual liberation is like repurposed to destroy a bunch of like backwards thinking men, right? Like as we said, 1969 starts appearing progressively as the film goes on. It starts like infecting the town as like she's using it as a way of, of liberating herself. And then the unfaithful wife, right? Like that's a film about a man who cannot handle the idea of a liberated woman, of a woman who is looking for affection and intimacy and wants to break out of this like horrible bourgeois shell with their tiny little TV and their stuffy son who's reading about the origins of God, you know? But I was surprised that like the both of these films perspective on sexuality, of course, like one using it as a weapon to, to liberate yourself uh, in A Curious Girl and then in the case of Chabrol, of that like pent up repression and anger materializing in, in actual violence and paranoia and obsession. And love, baby. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we should. Yeah. So like in in The Unfaithful Wife, Charles hires a P.I. And, and for the first 30 minutes, I suppose, if you were disinclined to believe the movie's title, you could believe that maybe she isn't having an affair, although I don't think Chabrol's trying to hide it at all. It's the goddamn name of the movie, right? But we really, we find that out with Charles, you know, 30-ish minutes into the movie, and we see a photo of this guy, Victor, right? You know? some French looking guy. Kyle said he looked like Jason Siegel in, uh, in, in the picture, which is very funny. <laughs> That's true. The scenes with the private eye, I, I, oh my gosh, I thought were, were masterful. Like that dude's performance, the, the guy that, that he hires, because I think the, 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 the connection that they have, right. Is that in, again, his sort of like vague, job, his vague career that he has, um, he has utilized this man as an investigator for something, perhaps corporate espionage. It's not made clear, but then, you know, when he meets this guy and, and they, they're done talking about this, whatever, he then kind of springs it on this investigator, right? Like, this is a personal matter. I actually want to talk to you about it. And you could see it. The guy who plays the private investigator, it's uh, his fucking performance. I was mesmerized by it because you suddenly see it like in his eyes of like infidelity. This guy wants me to fucking look in on his wife. Il s'agit d'enquêter sur l'emploi du temps d'une personne. Vous voyez? Oui, monsieur. Vous connaissez ma femme? 
Oui, monsieur, je l'ai rencontré deux fois à votre bureau. Je voudrais connaître son emploi du temps quand elle vient à Paris, savoir où elle va, qui elle voit. Enfin, vous comprenez Oui, monsieur. Vous acceptez Oui, monsieur. Vous n'approuvez pas ce que je vous demande, Bignon. C'est votre métier, pourtant. Bien sûr, monsieur. J'ai des soupçons sur sa fidélité. Je vous demande de vérifier, c'est normal. Elle me trompe, je veux connaître le nom de son amant. Je vous demande de le découvrir, c'est tout. Oui, je comprends. And he suddenly looks so sad. Like, he hates that aspect of his job. Like, you know, again, going back to our week on PIs, like, this guy fucking rocked for me. Like, he was fascinating to me. His performance was so, like, understated and filled with so much, like, just tender sorrow. I, I was, <laughs> I, I was like, in love with this dude with, with only his two brief... Moments, I was completely transfixed because we don't see his investigation at all. He's just like, all right, I'll see you in three or four days. And and it's just like the man's heartbroken that he has to do this, to, you know, to, to go and investigate this. And even though he does say, again, to your point, Marsh, like, you know, I might not find anything, right? But the, like, the pain in his eyes when he's asked to do this shows me that he's also like, yeah, I'm going to find something, right? Like, we yeah. <laughs> usually do find something, but this is like the dirty part. You know, I'm in, I'd rather do corporate espionage shit than, than chase around your wife, you know, and she's, you know, fooling around on you at, at uh, Dr. Zhivago screenings or whatever, <laughs> you know? <laughs> oh, man, that has to be my favorite, like, infidelity excuse of all time in a movie. Like, I went to go see Zhivago again, and he's like, I thought you hated it. And she's like, yeah, but I just wanted to, like, double check that I didn't like it. Dude, and I couldn't help... <laughs> But but think that that's that's a that's a cahier du cinema joke because <laughs> sure. they loved stomping on David Lean like Truffaut famously wrote like multiple takedowns of David Lean and I I couldn't help but again like find that little pitch black you know deadpan French New Wave humor in there that it's like oh of course Doctor Zhivago is going to lead to infidelity all that David Lean sentimental romantic epic bullshit. Right. Ah oui, je suis retourné voir le docteur Givago. Tiens, ça ne t'avait pas emballé. Pas non, mais tu vois, j'ai eu envie de le revoir. Je l'ai beaucoup mieux aimé cette fois-ci. To your point, Andy, about about the PI, there's there's this amazing moment when he meets him for the second time, and he's like. Okay, yeah, she's 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 cheating on you. She's she sees this guy every, you know, three times a week, every other day. Uh, and Charles is like, Can I see a picture? And the guy just kind of sighs. And then he walks like twenty feet away to a bench by the water where he's like hidden his briefcase. And then he pulls <laughs> out the photo and he gives it to him and he's like, We'll never see each other again. And Dude. he just walks off screen. He just I know, dude. It was like it was like he was like, "Don't ever ask me for this kind of shit again." Like, like he did it as a favor to yeah. him, and even though he pays him and he pays him well, like he's like he's like, "This was such a dirty thing. I did not want to do it." And I also, again, felt like he's like on a certain level, 
this investigator's like, I know where this could lead. Like, I know ultimately in this twisted tale where these kinds of things wind up. Absolutely. It's great. Ultimately, Charles, with this newfound information, and, and I should point out too, I love like the narrative economy here. It's like he meets with the PI. Next scene, he meets with the PI again. It's just later. Next scene, he's staking out his wife. You know, it's just like no fat on, on any of this movie. You know, it's just like going right to it. And ultimately, yeah, so Charles is spying on her. And then he decides to go confront the man. And there's this whole kind of like act he puts on. And it's hard to tell, I think, in certain regard, like, what he's being truthful about or not. But when he he comes in, he's talking to this guy, Victor, who's very shocked and very like, oh, I didn't know it was like this, you know? Because Charles is basically like, my wife has affairs. That's how it is. Yeah, he implies it's, that they have a, a an understanding, an open relationship. Exactly. However, it then arises that this guy's been around just a little too long, you know? So, like, that's even funny in, in retrospect. It's like this nitpicky thing, right, that is getting his blood up. But this film is also in a very funny way about a guy who just has a little bourbon for a change. Uh, because as he meets with Victor, he starts drinking bourbon. He's like, I don't normally drink bourbon, right? And so they're having this whole conversation and, and it's this like weird power play where Charles is kind of like trying to show off like, yeah, my wife's hot. Yeah, our, we have a kind of open relationship. It's fine. Yeah, you you're know? nothing to me. Exactly. And he's not okay. No. Right. And again, that's where like the objects came in. And this one I really like laughed out loud because the thing that seems to ultimately set him off, you know, after the guy gives him like this weird tour of his apartment. <laughs> yeah, it's like nice place. Yes, yeah, yes. including the bedroom that he fucks the his wife in. Bed yeah. unmade. Yeah, and like that, like, yes, you know, he's he's taking that all in stride pretty. You know, pretty well, I would say, for 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 a dude who's just confronted his wife's, you know, lover. Uh, but the thing that really sets him off, that gets that whiskey boiling inside of him, is the lighter. The lighter that his wife presented him once for their, I think, third anniversary. And then he thought it was just misplaced, but she re-gifted it to this guy. And and the lighter is <laughs> is a is a comically large Zippo. We're talking like like a, like an eighteen inch like Zippo. It is like like a novelty Zippo. It's not nice looking. It's not you know ceremony. It's not like a beautiful little gold lighter with his name engraved. It. It's just like a fucking like a a gag gift to get somebody. And he's like. She gave me this fucking thing. And I thought right then and there he was gonna brain him with the Zippo. I was, I was, I was so hoping he was gonna brain him with the fucking Zippo. Oh man, yeah, that Zippo was so fucking crazy because it is truly like, yeah, something you'd get at a gag gift shop. And it's like of all things, you know, usually if you're gonna give like your lover a gift, right, isn't typically in a film. It's like something really small that the that the husband might not notice is gone, you know. And yeah. instead, it's like this giant eyesore that like wherever. <laughs> it was housed in the house if it had 
any importance to him, he would know it was gone. Yeah, dude. Just the, even when he like flips it open and like lights, <laughs> lights it, it, and yeah. it's like a fucking torch gets lit. You know, the, the flame on that thing is yeah. like five inches high. I mean, I and again, like that was Chabrol. I feel like you know, uh, cheekily sending up Hitchcock and Hitchcock's object, uh, Hitchcock's objects and, and lighters have played a prominent role in Hitchcock films, strangers on a train, like the whole thing hinges on guys fucking lighter, you know? Uh, but, but with Hitchcock, he would do like a fucking macro lens, extreme close up on the lighter. So it would look massive dust, but Chabrol's like, you want a big object? I'll give you a big object. You want a you want a prominent object? Here it is. It's this lighter that just like you need two hands to use. <laughs> yeah, he also uses a lighter as a key object in the butcher, and and later reflected saying he didn't do either of them on purpose. But now that he thinks about it, fire has something to do with the home as well. <laughs> when he claims it was completely intuitive, yeah. Very funny guy. Uh, but I love that. And it's not the lighter, of course, that he uses as a weapon. But like a film we watched uh, not that long ago, Derfan, it yeah. is a, uh, you know, a European bust, a nice little statue. <laughs> Charles yeah, gets I a little. Yeah, I couldn't tell who it was. Whoever is depicted in the bust. Charles gets a little flush after the visit to the bedroom and seemingly more or less out of nowhere. I mean, I'll have to ask you guys how you how you what you expected to happen in that scene. But it's a very quick and swift, like two cut, just nails him on the head. And this guy is dead and bleeding on the ground. Just bashes his skull. In. <laughs> yeah, I mean. Yeah, I, I'm telling you, I thought he was going to do it with the lighter. I was like, this will be perfect to me. I was like, I was yeah. like, oh, maybe, yeah, Shabro like missed out on that opportunity. I, he should have just hung it because you could kill somebody with that fucking lighter. Folks, I cannot emphasize enough how hilariously large this fucking lighter was. <laughs> and I thought it would have made a great weapon. But but yeah, he uses the bust. And, and that's it, too, with the whiskey that you brought up, because he does after like the whole fiasco with the lighter, you know, goes on. He, he goes in the room and he's like sweating and he's like flushed and he, he's like, I think I'm going to pass out or whatever. And, and the, the fucking guy, Victor, is just like. Is it the whiskey? Uh, you know, it could be the whiskey, I think. He's just like, it ain't the fucking whiskey, you asshole. <laughs> and that just crushes his head with the bus. Yeah. I love I that. thought it was so funny, too, when he was, like, doing the cleanup of the blood and the body and getting ready to cart it away that he bothered to wipe off the fingerprints of the lighter. I just thought it was such a suspicious thing to have left behind regardless. You know, like, I I, I, I don't his. know. I, yeah. I know, I would have just taken it or thrown it away. I wouldn't have bothered, like, cleaning that lighter and leaving it at the scene of the crime. It's not like it belonged to that man, you know? If anything, somehow, maybe it would get back to you. It's an oddity enough, that object. Well, and maybe it does get back to him so yeah. you know there's there's a bit of ambiguity once we once we leave this place in terms of you know again perception and how the rest of the the sort of events unfold but also again you, you know if you talk about the 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 dark comedy like just that whole sequence the body the whole sequence of Amazing. the body i mean for fuck's sake i mean i was i was cracking up i thought it was brilliant you know, just in broad daylight in the middle of fucking Paris, yeah. this guy just dragging a body downstairs, like basically like onto the sidewalk. And yeah, he's in the middle the of trunk. the street. 
Yes. But he has a Mercedes. No one even gives a shit, you know? Exactly. I couldn't help but but read into that, you know, that the point is that he's untouchable on a certain level because he's this prominent man. He's this well-respected man in a suit with a fucking Mercedes. Like, I was was half expecting somebody to help him at a certain point stuff the body in, you know? (laughs) I really was. It gets pretty close when he gets in the fender bender. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, I really love that scene when he gets in that. Yeah, he gets in like a, a brief little car accident total rope uh, send up right the body in the trunk and then there's this gaggle of people in the street you know and that's right. Hitchcock's sense of humor right there right it's like the worst possible moment for something to happen to you right yeah. after you killed your wife's lover and stuffed <laughs> it in the body it's so French because then they like exchange information he's just mad about it he's a- just everyone's like everyone's shouting at each other and immediately there's like 15 people around the car including a gendarme, you know, who walks up like, what's going on here? And they're trying to pry the (laughs) trunk open, like, let's check out the damage here. And he's just like, (laughs) let's go, I've got insurance. Come on, wrap it all up here, you know? (laughs) Everyone's just mad and yelling at each other. That's all, like, I mean, like, the French, like, this is, these both of these movies are just, like, making fun of France and making fun of French culture, you know? Just everyone's yelling at each other. Same thing in A Very Curious Girl. There's just so many scenes where it's just suddenly everyone's there. They all seem to just be hovering around her shack and just, just ready to start just screaming at each other, threatening each other, like hitting each other, spitting on each other, shooting animals. Like it's so ridiculous. It is just so the funeral party really kicks things off. Yeah. You know? I was going to say, cause we had, we had sort of elided over it, but there is a really f- heavily featured body in the first chunk of a very curious, just girl, like rope. Just just like Rope. And it is the, the body of her mother that had died in the hit-and-run accident. And these men just refuse to bury her. They just, like, cart her over um, in just the well, most— she refuses the Catholic burial. I think that's key mm, because she's, okay. like, rejecting all of their values. And they offer, like, oh, well, the town will bury her. And she's like, I don't want—she doesn't want anything to fucking do with you. Because yeah. one thing we haven't mentioned as well, yeah— quote unquote witch, but like part of the whole situation in the town is that she's a gypsy, right? Like that as well. So there's like this implied racism uh, toward her mother, right? Because like when her mother dies, everyone's like, yeah, she was a she was a gypsy whore. Like that's yeah. what everyone says about her. Yeah, they 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 in this moment where like the body's not even cold, you know, they're basically like, well, you know, this is the this is the bastard daughter of a bastard witch. You know, neither of them had a father. And that's when the priest even is like, well, I'm assuming no baptism then. You ain't getting in my, like, church burial grounds. You know, no way. And I think that's the moment, right? Like, that's the moment for her when, you know, you can really even see it in her. She does, like, break down after these events. And and I should say climaxing in this moment where she's sort of throwing everybody out and then the fucking game warden shoots her fucking goat and she is just, like, sobbing in her in her shack, you know, with her dead mother. And, and you just suddenly see that kind of, that realization in her face of, like, 
I'm going to get these fuckers. I'm going to get every single one of them. And then hatches the scheme to throw a party and get all these guys drunk and... and Give them the chamomile tea. Right. And promise <laughs> them. Yeah, you can... You can you'll, you'll get what you want. You'll definitely get what you want. But first, can you just kind of help me out here and... Bury my mom. <laughs> yeah. They turn it into like a fucking like game, like a party where they're, they're, they're going to bury her and they're all laughing and dancing. They're with so drunk. Wrong. Yeah, dude. yeah, it's insane. I mean, that's one of those great moments too, where she, you can tell that that's when she's recognizing like she has total control over these dudes just because their morals are just non-existent. It's like they'll party in her shack, like with a dead body in the corner, and like you know maybe bat an eye on it. They might be like, oh, that's a little odd, but they just they play along. You know, they're they're not that perturbed that there's a rotting corpse in the room while they're having their celebration. Yeah, and I think that's part of the game, you know, that the film is playing with these guys who are like, look at her as if she's a piece of meat, as if she's an animal, and they're the fucking animals, mm-hmm. you know, from the priest on down, yeah. right? She just starts hurting them, you know? She just starts hurting them like a bunch of animals. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the whole thing is a fucking like Bruno Dumont sort of like rural yeah. setup to put it in, I guess, in like a contemporary context. I couldn't help but think like, yeah, this is, you know, this is where Quint, Quint, Quint lives, you know, like <laughs> this is where, you know, the it's soldier true. from Flanders comes from. I yeah. mean, like Jesus Christ. Yeah. It's like a bunch of pigs and shit, really. You know? <laughs> Yeah, and there's that the nasty the pharmacist uh, that is like, you know, Monsieur giving Paul. out all yeah. the... Monsieur yeah, Paul. Monsieur <laughs> Paul is like giving out the medicine for all the STDs that these guys think they're they're starting to collect. Just, yeah, like a co- <laughs> just the nastiest dudes. He is my, I think, my favorite of the group. I mean, I, I definitely liked the game warden. I got a, a big kick out of him, you know, uh-huh. as, he's, as he's tromping through this like swampy marshland and he's like, this is disgusting. Disgusting, worse than Indochina, you know. <laughs> Another <laughs> iconic game warden, uh, like rules of the game, yeah. right? It's like again, a f- this like French type. You exactly. Know? Yeah, they all have their like place, you know, from the mayor to the to the fucking boy scout, right? To the mayor getting fed soup by his wife was also just one of the darkest moments for me, where he refuses to ladle in his own soup and it's right next to him. Mm-hmm. That is something I love. You know, I, I've, I'm a bit of a Francophile on, on a certain level, and there's certain aspects of French, like, daily life that you see in lots of French films, particularly, like, older French films as well that I've, I've always just wanted to implement in my own home. And, and that aspect that you see in a lot of French films of just soup, and it's always being ladled out from a very large, like, you know, 
ceramic crock pot type thing and it's always just this broth that gets labeled into a bowl like there's so many french films where you see that it's just soup we gotta have soup grandpa's eating soup everybody's eating fucking soup and i love soup i also really love you guys have probably seen this a lot and i I don't really understand you know why or how this is but you've seen it in a lot of french breakfast scenes where they drink coffee from bowls yeah you know what i'm talking about they do like the coffee with a lot of milk in a bowl with just like a baguette and that's your breakfast and I've always wanted that, like the the French coffee bowl. It's a very specific type of bowl, mm-hmm. like the coffee bowl. But yeah, that soup scene had me going because I love those ladles. When they pull those things out in the French movies, I'm always like, man, I want some of that broth. I mean, we get that in, in Unfaithful Wife as well with the dinner scene and the nightclub scene because, yeah, Charles, you know, is like trying to, you know, get his groove back and get him and his wife's groove back. And he's like, we should go out. Let's go it's, clubbing. Let's go clubbing. I'm it's hip. on me. <laughs> and, you know, famously, Chabrol was a bit of a gourmand himself. And, yeah, this it's just like this over-the-top French restaurant that's super gaudy. And they're all just, like, sipping their champagne. And there's, like, an, you know, an exaggerated waiter with a big mustache. There's the woman who is laughing laughing obnoxiously at everything that someone says right after taking a huge gulp of wine. I mean, yeah, he is just, he's having a laugh. Again, right? Like the whole, like just sending up a French culture. I, I don't know if you guys picked it up too, but one of my other favorite moments was just at a certain point in the unfaithful wife when he like walks outside when he's really starting to kind of melt down and, and, and get lost in his paranoia. And, and I think it's like a car radio is playing this song yeah. and the lyrics of the song are unbelievable. I should have, I should have wrote them all down, but like the song was basically like, I'm the, you know, I'm the ultimate Frenchman. I've got excellent tobacco in my pouch. I'll die <laughs> for this country. I'm the ultimate Frenchman. It's something like yeah. that. And, and it's like, that is the, that is the anthem playing while a French man, a rich, wealthy French man is, is, is like, should I kill my wife? <laughs> it's, it's amazing. Je suis un Français à part entière, encore un Français entièrement tabac. J'ai du bon tabac dans ma tabatière. J'ai du bon tabac, tu n'en auras pas. J'ai du bon tabac, tu n'en auras pas. Si l'on touchait qu'à Dieu ne plaise à mon pays, fleur de lisée, je chanterai la Marseillaise, peut-être bien le point levé, je chanterai la Marseillaise en montant les Champs-Élysées, en montant les Champs-Élysées. And it was funny, like, how that's in contrast with, like, that big nightclub that they go to, where that's one of those moments of 1969, just, like, creeping into the movie. It felt like something out of Austin Powers, the way that everyone's dressed with, like, the sequins on their dresses, you know, dancing around. It's, like, so colorful. There's all these lights. That was one of those moments that actually reminded me that the film took place in 1969 and not in, like, the the 19th century. (laughs) Swingin' Perry of 69. Dude. <laughs> I love too when when Charles comes home from from murdering Victor uh, and there's like a party going on for his kid in their like huge yard and there's like such good like depth work you know I think throughout the movie but particularly in that scene as he's like you know panting from you know 
throwing a body in a swamp callback to a previous episode. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and yeah, just getting home and like, yeah, this this like bourgeois life just like bustling around him. And, and that's kind of the curious thing, I think, that starts to happen in this film that uh, kind of sets it apart from, I think, other films like it, which is ultimately this is, of course, leading to, yeah, like cops showing up and, and inquiring about uh, Helen's whereabouts, you know, but like ultimately her learning, you know, what happened and, and her reaction to that, uh, which I think, again, leans in that direction of, yeah, like the wicked cosmic joke that ultimately Chabrol is playing here because after the murder, yeah, he's shook, Charles is shook, but like he's becoming more considerate. He's becoming more involved. He wants to spend more time with her. It's this totally sick French thing where it's like, I lo- after I killed that guy, like I loved my wife even more, you know? And yeah. like, that's ultimately where I think Chabrol's like trying to guide, to guide this thing. Yeah. You and know? even for her, you yeah, know, upon, exactly. you know, at first being very just like depressed and moving around like a zombie because she can't be with her lover after keeping such regular appointments with him and, and not being able to reveal to her knowing husband why she's so bummed out, why she's like lost. Right. But, but that even for her, when she discovers it, when she kind of, Oh, he, he, she finds the photo from the, the private investigator and, and they have these like knowing glances. Nothing is ever said, but they start to exchange these like looks and these glances. And again, in this kind of sick, twisted way where, where she's like, oh, I wish he'd shown me this kind of passion before. Yes. <laughs> right? I wish he'd I wish he'd shown me how much I wish he re- I wish I knew, you know, that he would go to these levels. Like that's how much he loved me. I thought I thought you were fucking your secretary or whatever. I thought yeah. this is just what we do. There, I think the my favorite shot in the movie comes in that moment, Andy, and and it's just like a, a telephoto kind of like shallow focus shot of her walking across the lawn, and she has that like Mona Lisa like is she smiling look on her face, and it sort of just like develops in the smallest, teeniest, like she's not making a face, but like she is making a face. And it's, she's like basked in sunlight, right? And yeah, it's just, again, it's the it's the kind of the punchline to the movie, like, and she likes it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's like, it's like they're seeing each other for the first time. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. And the puzzle that Michelle was working on that was driving him and everyone else nuts is put back together. Because there is, again, in that sick sort of black humor way, like their their relationship with their son is breaking down while all this is unfolding. But it turns out everyone just wasn't on the same page. I will say my favorite display of passion found between the two films is definitely the passion that that boy scout eats those uh biscuits l'amour in uh, a very curious girl he's kind of force-fed those biscuits i will say yeah but he does start to like adopt uh, an affection for them in the midst of being force-fed it i don't know if it's a bit of stockholm syndrome or or fear of a woman's touch that he, he's seeking you know comfort and a bit of biscuits but she does like get this young boy scout 
you know, into her shack. It reminds me son the, of Duvalier, the mm-hmm. warden. Right. Yeah. He's yeah. He believed. <laughs> <laughs> and she yeah she she gets him inside and she's got like this goofy like eagle scout fr- like the french equivalent of an eagle scout uniform on and she's just got all these bins these like boxes of biscuits l'amour that she starts shoving down his throat she keeps passing him on to silence him every time he's he's trying to reject you know any of these advances like oh my father my father wouldn't approve and she's caressing his pimples and commenting on the other like positive aspects of himself but that was like a really startling image this this little boy scout with his bandana i mean he's like a grown man he's you know he's yeah, he's like, like a 30 year old boy scout. i don't want to make it sound like she's doing this to a child but yes yeah this big grown man in a boy scout uniform total arrested development just like shoving cookies down his throat uh that that i enjoyed yeah look both of these films are about hot women who are surrounded by just disgusting pigs you know yeah. but you know marie does she does like get back at them right and i guess we should detail a little bit like you know what she gets up to because as i mentioned she was Capitalism. really sh- yeah it's true she was well she was really struck by that tape recorder that she she saw at the store the machine that could that could freeze sounds you know and throughout the film she also has this this like record playing there's this looping song throughout the entire runtime of a very curious girl that i was sad that they never translated for us because then i could at least like reference what the song was or maybe the double meaning of it but instead i just have it like lingering in the back of my mind i'm gonna feel like i'm gonna hear it when i even go to bed tonight you know but she does have this she has this song that's always looping and you know secretly as she's been having these men over she starts to record some of their conversations and that's when there's this great climax in the church at the end of the film where she she brings in a ladder no one bothers to stop her she sets up this tape recorder like up on the ceiling out of reach takes the ladder with her and all the men are exposed in in front of their wives for all of the the nasty little things they were sharing with with marie and she's completed another art project. I mean, again, yeah. the more I think about it, the more I think this movie is, yeah, like the birth of an artist. I mean, it's sure. like she goes from being this peasant to being, yeah, this like conceptual modern artist who's using all these like consumer goods and electronics that she's buying with her capital, you know, after fending off the attempted price control coup of 1969. (laughs) Uh, As there's, yeah, there's like, you know, all these like community scenes, like an old Western where they're like meeting and being like, how do we stop this woman? She's tearing us all apart. You know, we all insist on paying four francs or something like that. She's charging 40 and they're like, how about five? Sounds Uh, good to me. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, and that's it, right? Both of these films, you've, I think both, I think we all have uh, alluded to it, but both of these films are, you know, have, have deeply embedded with them, within them, like these, these, these critiques of, of capital. And, and I think in, you know, on another level, Marsh, like, yes, she's like becoming an artist, but she's also, she's also kind of becoming like, uh, not just like a liberated woman sexually, but like the liberated worker. And there's this kind of Marxist element of her, owning her own labor and that's it right they're they're frustrated by that and and like the bosses at certain points try to say you don't own your labor like we own your labor and and she's kind of like fighting against that and i think it's really direct 
in the case of a very curious girl, what's what's happening there, and the color red being so prominently displayed by her, with her, on her. At a certain point, even she says, like, don't you think I look good in red? And and she starts, like, you know, decorating her place in lots of red and wearing this, this bright red coat. But I, I think even in, like, Chabrol's film, and I think it's something you see in other Chabrol films, like, part of the reason why he focuses so heavily on, like, the bourgeois is this, I think, you know, this this statement on, well, like, look at these rich fuckers. What else do they have to do? Like, this guy, as you pointed out, just, like, doesn't do anything. He just has money. He just works, like, a fake job. The, the, the closest we get to any idea of what they do is just somebody at a certain point being like, did you find that file? <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like the file, right? The, the Johnson file, whatever. The, 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 the Remy file. I don't know. But, like... But that's like, I think what Chabrol is often like playing with. It's like, look at these people who have everything. Look at these people who are so wealthy that all they can eventually do is just turn on each other, right? Over over something small. I mean, you could argue whether or not you think infidelity is small, but is it worth He certainly had other someone over it. Yeah, yeah, he had other options. You know, and he, like... he, he presented himself in this big charade as like, oh, I'm a, I'm a cosmopolitan guy. You know, we have this understanding. We have an open relationship, but it's bullshit. It's bullshit. You know, he melts down over, over like the one moment when when something he believes he possesses he doesn't actually own and i think that's why chabrol often plays with you know this class particularly in a lot of his like thrillers and murder films and stuff it's like look at the idle fuckers who eventually are just gonna like bash somebody's skull in because what else do they have to contribute to this world? Yeah, well, I mean, and it's like, yeah, it's such a, it's such a shock for Charles because he has the easiest life of all time. And that's like what's so disquieting about the movie is it's about this guy who has a perfect life. And the second it doesn't go exactly the way he wants, which again, it's just like so cushy all the way through, you know? He just bashes this guy's head in. It's like he has to regain that balance for him, which is like, yeah, the patriarchal domination of everything and ownership over everything, right? And in this film, the wife happily goes along with that sort of bourgeois family structure because the the end of the film has a very famous shot where, you know, these cops have been inquiring very doggedly, very Columbo-like. I love it, too, because when they first show up and they even say that, they're like, well, you know, we're we're making progress in our hit-or-miss way. You know? Like, yeah, just stumbling around, these guys. And uh, Police Gobey, the assistant guy, he's, like, one of the most striking, ghoulish figures to, like, walk into this movie. And he keeps, like, rubbing his nose. He's just got a very strange vibe. But, like... Again, Charles, terrible criminal, right? Like, obviously, this guy's never worked yeah. a day in his life. Like, <laughs> yeah, we get some Bersanian shots of him, like, cleaning. But, like, we know that he's left <laughs> plenty to pick up on, I'm sure, at least with his uh, big accident, among other things. Well, and I think that's also the the sort of, the, the again, like, the weird, twisted kind of turn that we see uh, for him and his wife to like profess their love to one another because the cops at first they are 
zero, you know, that like, you know, ghoulish detective you described, they are zeroed in on her. They are laser focused in on her. They know she's had a relationship with this guy. They know she's had an affair of some kind. And they're, of course, trying to be discreet, especially in front of the husband. But they are, they are, they're pin, they have pinpointed her as the prime suspect. And they are coming back to pick apart her lies and her alibi. And it's when the husband suddenly basically injects himself when he, you know, helps her lie. And I think that's like the moment that the focus then shifts. It, it, it's like he's giving them an opportunity to instead shift towards him. It's like the self-sacrifice at that point of being like, I love my wife so much, I don't want her to go to prison. He could have just stood idly by and he let them have. keep investigating the wife because the cops knew she lied about when she saw him. They sniffed around. They they would just have to ask people in the neighborhood, like, have you seen this lady before? Yeah, she's here like every other fucking day, right? Like, the cops know it's she is somehow involved, but when he backs up her lie, her alibi, the cops are like, something going on with this guy and it wouldn't take long to whatever fill in the other blanks of yeah maybe his name's on that fucking you know obnoxiously large lighter or some <laughs> yeah. shit like that whatever right it doesn't really matter like how they uncover whatever they uncover if they uncover anything at all because again there's certain i think ambiguity to it all right or certainly how it's going to wind up but. absolutely because yeah they're you know they're having a beautiful day in the garden when the police sort of just like show up in the distance and we're very from the the camera perspective we're very far away from the police and charles goes to meet them out in the road and as he looks back he sees, you know, his wife and son bathed in sunlight in a French garden. And the camera tracks back and zooms in at the same time. It's like this, yeah. you know? As branches from a tree begin to obscure the view. Yeah, it's amazing. And yeah, it's just this devious kind of uh, ominous ending. And uh, for me, it's just, yeah, it's, it's wicked in all the right ways. It's just so satisfying and how it all works you mm -hmm. know? yeah i mean that's i think a thing about chabrol that you know and it took a while for me to come around to chabrol it really did yeah. because i think like a lot of other like you know young cinephiles you know when you first get into the new wave your, your brain is being broken by Godard, and and you're like oh whoa you know you watch something like a, a woman is a woman or you know Pierrot de Fou, and you're like, yeah, this is the new wave, you know, and Chabrol, there's so much more subtlety there. And I think as you explained in your 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 um your introduction, Marsh, you know, Chabrol a poor guy, right? I think when you place him right next to some of the other figures, it's like, is it is this the new wave? Like this is just looks like a, th a thriller. This looks like a, a you know, a, a drama. This looks so so he's playing it straight, you know, where's the goofiness? Where's the breaking of the fourth wall? Where's all this kind of pop art stuff? But, but it's like, God damn, like his films, uh, even some of his later films, they are just these, these, these finely tuned machines that, that hum along and and it, it's only, I think, after you finish the film and, and can reflect back on it where you're like, man, every moment in there was just like clockwork. 
uh, it had to be that way. And there are flourishes and there are moments of, of creativity and, and ingenuity that really kind of only, only like, I think arrive for you after you can kind of get some distance and reflect on it and be like, man, what a fucking tight ass movie that was. I mean, it was just, and I think that's why for me, I always go back to Hitchcock because I think they all loved Hitchcock. It's, it's clear, you know, they all loved Hitchcock, but Chabrol, you know, has always kind of reminded me of like De Palma in a certain level of being like, you know, he really loves Hitchcock. And even if he's trying to distance himself from it and be like, I'm not, I'm not that. And Hitchcock, it's like, man, just like a Hitchcock film, it's like every cut, every shot, every, every composition is, is, is in there for a very specific reason. You know, this isn't Godard throwing a bunch of shit at the wall and hoping that it sticks. And the brilliance of Godard is that often it does stick or enough sticks that we walk away and go, hey, you know, all right. Like there was one sequence there where I really had no idea what the fuck was going on, but I loved everything else. With these films, you know, by Chabrol, it's like, man, everything in there was in there for a very specific purpose and for a very specific reason. Yeah, it's a well-oiled machine, and I would guess I would ask both of you: Did you have any particular bits of 1969 uh, tech or machinery that you've really enjoyed? I, I personally really enjoyed during the shopping sequence in *A Very Curious Girl* that hair dryer that actually looks like a giant vacuum cleaner, like it was presumably like available in like just this nearby quote unquote city near this countryside town, you know, like this is a hair dryer and it like had a big hose attached to it, <clears throat> a big hose attached to it. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I like the little TV too. I wasn't sure if there were any other 69 tech that you thought was funny. I mean, her apartment as we've kind of described earlier, just becomes this, this just, like, installation yeah 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 this, yeah this like installation of all that crap of all that like just disposable you know consumer garbage that was i'm mm-hmm. sure very cutting edge at the time and and i think anytime you look at a film from the past there's always that element of just being like how quaint how cute or whatever right. oh you know this was this was groundbreaking back then but but you know for me i think in this film it just it all becomes so grotesque like, you know, at, at first she's kind of excited by it and interested in it. But like as the film goes, I think you start to see even for her, like the contempt, like this is all these are all tools that she's going to to use. And you, you kind of described in one way how she utilizes some of that stuff to to get at them. But but the key here is that, you know, at the end, what does she do with all of it? She like you said, Marsh, she creates a couple installations outside, you know, she empties out her apartment. She just piles it all up like some, some twisted sculpture and, and basically sets fire to her place and, and lets everybody have at it. And I love too, that they're just like, let's smash up her things, you know, like consumers (laughs) are like, this stuff mattered to her. You know, she, she, she used our money to buy all this garbage. Let's destroy it. Which is again, like, a, a sick joke because it's like, well, why don't you just take all this shit? You know, like yeah, there's a perfectly good phone that's part of like Black <laughs> Phillips grave, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, like just take all this crap. But but that you know, M- you know, Marsh has beautifully described the the sort of closing shot of <clears throat> of the unfaithful wife. But look, man, the the closing shot of of a very curious girl is I think also like very powerful, a very powerful image, which is her like 
throwing all that shit out and just like dispensing with all this shit, this, this garbage, this consumer crap that, that she used to basically like turn all these people against one another. And now she's just walking down an empty road, uh, off to the cinema, right? She's heading to go meet up with Andre at a screening of presumably the film we just watched, right? <laughs> right, that's yeah, the, the, the Pirates Fiancé. And she walks yeah, right it, by a sign that says, no gypsies allowed. So again, I think, like, reinforcing that, like, class, social climbing sort of aspect of the movie. And then the credits roll as she just, like... Proudly becomes a gypsy once again. Yeah, she throws her shoes away and just walks down the street barefoot to go find uh, dearest Andre and his projector. Yeah, tossing away her high heel shoes too, I think, which is like disposing of a certain role that a woman is expected to play, yeah. right? So this idea that she's even further liberated from that. And she's yeah. like totally her own woman. The gold shoes too, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Very shiny gold shoes. That's another right, like little new wave. Uh, I feel like a new wave flourishing connection. It's, you know, both of these films at a certain point sort of reference, you know, the filmmaking itself, the film. Right? We we've talked about that one, but did you both catch at a certain point in uh, the Unfaithful Wife when when he's driving by a theater that's showing. Le Bichet. Le Bichet yep. by Claude Chabrol. Yep. Yeah, It's something I always have loved about the, the, the hustle of the new wave guys is like the self-promotion and cross-promotion embedded within so many of their films. Right. Yeah, yeah. I love imagining him like literally just driving by in the midst of a shoot and being like, ha, that's one of mine. Like, go ahead and like quickly grab that from the window of the car. But yeah, you know, Andy, you were giving us grief about... Um, Picking two French films from from 1969, keeping it a bit insular here. I guess I would ask you then, what are some of your favorite 1969 films outside of the country of France? I'm going to limit you from from exploring France any further. What what other 69 films do you love? Well, I want to say I don't think I was giving you grief. I was merely pointing <laughs> out that that how in the you know, in the wide world of cinema of 1969, how, how really similar these films were. And I sure. think, you know, our conversation sort of got there on a certain level, but I certainly wasn't giving you grief. I've given you much worse for other, other <laughs> indiscretions. <laughs> I feel that you've, uh, that you've, you know, brought to me here. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you know, for me, uh, 69 is, a, I think, a year that's that's very prominent in my own growth um, as, a, as an appreciator of film. And I, I think that this year, in, in a certain respect, holds two films for me that I think represent the, the opposite ends of my spectrum of appreciation on a certain level, or like two films that are huge pillars of who I am as, as somebody who likes movies and, and makes movies and teaches films and, you know, um, just they're, they're huge parts of, of, of my growth and my development. Uh, one is, uh, one of, you know, my, my all time great, pleasure films uh, and that would be Sam Peckinpah's The Wild Bunch. I think that's that's the first movie I watched as a as a young like adolescent where I I immediately like finished it. I remember watching it on laserdisc and like as soon as The Wild Bunch ended, I like had this really deep 
heavy sigh of appreciation and then wanted desperately to immediately put it back on and, and watch it again. And, and the wild bunch is, is just, it's, it's one of my, my all time favorite films. I used to often say to people, it's my favorite movie. If I had to, to pick one movie. And I think just simply because I, I, I've watched it so many times and I could watch it again tomorrow and, and be just as moved by everything that, that happens and just as impressed by everything that happens in that film. But then on, on, on a kind of very different level, uh, later in my life, I had my brain totally broken. I had whatever ideas I had held about what movies are and what they look like, what they sound like, what they can do, completely uh, overthrown when I was at grad school and uh, Chris Rivetto Biagioli, my professor, showed me Sergei Parajanov's The Color of Pomegranates from 1969 as well. And that movie is confounding in all the ways that like The Wild Bunch is just such a, like a, 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 a beautiful novel to me. The Color of Pomegranates is the most perplexing, earth-shattering poetry. Uh, and I think those two things for me in this year, I think really represent what I love about all cinema. It's a hell of a year. And Burn came out as well, my favorite. Uh, <laughs> Almost you. brought Brando to the pod. I would have loved it. I love Burn, dude. I, I love that movie. I know. See, that's the thing. I think, I, I think in my mind, not trying to give you guys grief, but when, when I was like giving you the topic, I was like, I was, I was half expecting some kind of, you know, political film. Because 69, very, very politically charged film. Still dealing with the turmoil of 68, right? But now having a little bit of cynicism thrown in, a little less optimism. The revolution's already failing, you know? Just like the revolutions in the bedroom and shack we saw this week. <laughs> yeah. I mean, fuck, dude. I, I'm pretty sure Peter Watkins' The Gladiators is 69. That's right. And that's another one that I just, I, oh, God, I've gone to that film many, many times. Yeah. Yeah, no, we sort of took it upon ourselves to make it really niche. We, we had to narrow it down. We were just like total option paralysis. I mean, this is we've just listed off a bunch of great titles. There were also just so many films we were looking at. And I yeah. was like, well, I got this one French movie that looks pretty good. And he's like, okay, I got one to go with that. I had two <laughs> Chabral masterpieces to pick from. So, hey, And I'm glad, I'm glad you brought the films that you did because I hadn't seen either of them. And, and I enjoyed them both tremendously so thank you both oh you're very welcome yeah it was my turn to pick and i believe ryan is up next so what do you got for us if you're still alive you know we should point out ryan is is struggling here a little bit he finally <laughs> finally got yes. the coof so what do you I got do. for us what do you got for I, us i know yeah that's it's a i was thinking about while watching poor poor nelly kaplan who passed from from COVID, I was starting to feel some symptoms as I was watching the film and realizing I was getting infected. So that that is me right now. But I've I've certainly enjoyed sitting here with my my brethren and and hearing about these two films. I but it's great because so I've had this topic in mind for a while. And I was thinking about last year how 
you know, we were, you know, when we say the gauntlet, you know, most people zig while the gauntlet zags. We, we tried to avoid doing like an active horror theme last year come come Halloween time, right? There's and, nothing wrong with Spoketober. I keep saying this. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with it at all. But I thought, you know what? Why, why not? Why don't we just like take a look at, at some horror? But I was trying to think of an angle for it, you know, and I and I and I, I landed on one. And it was so funny that a very curious girl ended up being this like fantastic segue because I didn't realize that the the witchcraft element of a very curious girl uh, was, was just going to be there at all. And that's that's what I want to watch next week. I want to watch a pair of films about witchcraft to however extent you you know you want to interpret that whether it be more of an explicit horror film whether it be something else just something that involves the the nature of you know hexing witchcraft and and that sort of thing nice i'm into it as always you can follow us on twitter at gauntlet movies or send us an email at gauntlet movie podcast at gmail.com thanks everyone je suis un français à part entière encore un français entièrement tabac j'ai du bon tabac dans ma tabatière j'ai du bon tabac tu n'en auras pas j'ai du bon tabac tu n'en auras pas si l'on touchait qu'à Dieu ne plaise à mon pays, fleur de lisée, je chanterai la Marseillaise, peut-être bien le point levé, je chanterai la Marseillaise en montant les Champs-Élysées, en montant les Champs-Élysées.